not only is there a tremendous push for new mobility and logistics, but a street is it's also a place. It's not just a corridor for movement. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. Conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Andres Sevstuk, urban planner, educator whose work combines urban design with spatial analysis. Andres joins us today to discuss his work on the streets of Los Angeles. Andres, welcome. Thank you for having me. So Andres, you have had an interest in streets for a long time. How did you first get interested in the idea? So at one point, I became interested at looking at cities as networks. There in very obvious ways, cities are places where social interaction occurs. The very fundamental reason why people prefer to be in cities is they augment access to opportunities of all sorts, including social opportunities, educational, meeting, getting exposed to specialized information and, and so on. And when we look at the city as a spatial network, then streets are the fundamental links that connect everything up. They're also augmented these days by other communication means that we don't necessarily only rely on physical interaction where we travel through a city along its streets. We can also call and connect electronically. But streets remain, I think, fundamental to defining how urban communications really unfold. And I have been fascinated by this for for a while. I think somewhere during my graduate studies, I, I started looking at this more seriously and, and started representing cities as spatial networks and and came ex- kind of discovered this whole world of how that opens up various kinds of analytics that we can apply so long as we have a different representation i think so i was um, trained as an architect and urban designer and so if we if we draw a built environment uh, just think of traditional figure ground mapping or other forms of thematic mappings of cities then our tool to analyze and process these maps are really our eyes and our brains. So we look at a compelling map and we can see a million things and we discover things through our eyes. And and the more trained we are, the more trained our students are, the better they become at, at analyzing urban complexity just by looking at maps. But graphs or networks expose a whole other possibility beyond that, which is where where the analysis doesn't depend on my training or my eyes, but there are certain calculations we we can apply on urban environments. And we can do that without knowing even a place too well. We can compute certain characteristics of accessibility or certain characteristics of where where are we bound to find uh, most people traveling on which streets are going to be the main streets of a city, or where are we going to have street commerce and ground floor retailers and services and restaurant businesses. These are predictable phenomena because we can analyze a city as a network and understand how land use is urban form and transport all interact with each other. And for me, the sort of depiction of cities as networks really opened up this world of going beyond my subjective and maybe qualitatively richer analysis that I can do with my eyes towards more systemic investigations of the built environment. So, Andres, you've more recently, the GSD, been engaged in a uh, research studio looking at the, the future of streets, uh, focusing on Los Angeles. W- which of those topics in your work came first? Are you interested in streets and Los Angeles was a good venue for that? Or was it L.A. first and then the topic came after? 
the topic came first. Uh, I have been interested in streets for quite a while now uh, from various angles, and I um, have been seeking opportunities to engage more with LA. I've been going there fairly regularly over the last 10 years, and uh, I find it extremely interesting. One of the most dynamic American cities, I would say. It's growing and it's doing a lot. So they sort of naturally merged. The, couldn't find a better venue in the U.S. to talk about the future of streets. They certainly have a lot of them. Let's start there. Um, and so your interest in L.A. has been a decade long now professionally. And in, in that regard, you know, in addition to being one of the, you know, the major metropolitan areas, one of the major media markets, it's also Los Angeles has been one of the key venues for thinking about the city. You know, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, Banham's Four Ecologies and the idea of the non-plan and the idea of a, a, a city that in some ways is, of course, planned, but in some ways also represents a kind of American idea about autonomy. Yes, indeed. I think somewhat ironically, nobody's really posited LA as a model of urbanism per se. Yet, I would argue it's probably been the most influential model city in the United States for exporting urbanism around the world. Mm. Why do you think that is? The car-oriented and expansive models predicated on a dream of a single-family home with a yard, I think has been adopted by the world more than any other idea. You know, you, you might argue that maybe it's not inherently American, maybe it would have emerged elsewhere uh, because of how technology evolved, etc. It probably would have emerged in Europe. But LA, um, at least in the second half of the 20th century, really became the poster child of this sort of urbanism that, unlike any other city, it's really a, a metropolitan region. And LA's highways are what subways are to New York. And it ties together a vast urban area with extremely diverse conditions, uh, ranging from very high-density mixed-use downtown to small urban villages almost that are walkable inherently, places like Pasadena or Culver City or Santa Monica and, and uh, all the way out to uh, Riverside or Long Beach. It's all functionally working as, as a single um, functional metropolitan area, more so than any other place I've seen. And I think if you look at the vast metropolitan areas of Asia that have grown somewhat contemporaneously with L.A., many of them only a century old, some of them only half century old, that model of what fundamental spatial ideas and technologies enable a city to grow that fast over such a large territory, integrating industry and housing in, in an almost, um, one could say unplanned way, but in an, in an enabled way because of those typologies of access and housing and infrastructure I think is what enabled places like Shenzhen or Shanghai and, and others to also grow and even Jakarta and places that are basically grown around a similar set of ideas. Interesting. I'm interested in your work about the, the role of the street as a, as a venue, right? So when we think of Los Angeles, we have to think about the, the mediated image, right? The kind of the, the export of certain images of desire, you know, nationally and globally. But ultimately, the image of the freeway, the image of the beach, you know, the the, the, the images that come to us through the history of Los Angeles don't necessarily describe themselves through the, the street, which tends to be a more, a more traditional metric of, of city building. So I think it is instructive to look at L.A. historically, and um, I'll borrow for a moment the analogy uh, proposed by Chris Hawthorne, the chief design officer now, former L.A. Times architecture critic, where Chris would argue that L.A. is actually in its third phase of 
city development, a third ideology, if you wish. The first LA was somewhere from 1880s till 1930s, 1940s. And that LA was very much a premise on the street. It was actually not so different from other American cities like Chicago or New York of the time, where um, it had the largest streetcar system of any city in the world in the 1920s. It had a lot of mid-rise, multi-story construction, uh, mixed-use developments. Downtown was similar to many other vibrant downtowns of, uh, of the country at the time. But that all gave way to this post-war LA, which really started with um, uh, the introduction of very large industries in LA that brought along a shift in transportation also to much more motorization and private automobile. A lot of the former rail connections slowly vanished um, and the city redefined itself really around the automobile and it exploded uh, laterally. And it was enabled by um, a housing model that was premised around the car, but it was also enabled by strong federal programs to construct the highways out. And L.A. adopted a highway network unlike any other city in the U.S. So there's no other city in the U.S. that literally has a grid of highways. Mm. Boston has two or three coming together. Mm -hmm. There's a 93, 95, maybe the, the turnpike. Uh, New York has a few. But L.A. literally has a grid, uh, and people refer to the their home addresses these days as where do you live? I'm off of the 605 or I'm 110 and mm. 10 or I'm at the uh, 405 or 5, etc. So it, it has de redefined the geography of this. It's true. I mean, one could almost imagine, um, you know, I guess the, the, the Jersey Turnpike might have this kind of scalar geography to it on the mm -hmm. East Coast, uh, but not the gridded network that you're describing, right? Yes. It's which, which exit. Um, so in that, of course, Los Angeles has also been home to any number of urban theories, any number of, you know, kind of key concepts in geography. You know, it's been a place that has studied the city as well, that your work built upon historically. Yeah, so what I was trying to get to with a, this concept of three LAs is that um, many would argue that the second LA, the automobile LA, started to give away to a very different notion of the future city somewhere in the 1990s. Some might say later, but essentially uh, 1990 was a turning point where the first rail line was reopened. That was the blue line going to um, to Long Beach from downtown. And in the course of just a decade and a half, L.A. had five new subway lines. They're not all subways. They're also on ground. And because of this shift, it also brought along concepts of transit-oriented development, again, new uh, multi-story typologies started emerging, um, new housing models. There's been a tremendous amount of innovation in housing, largely because the nature of the city itself was changing. Multi-story building again became possible. And Chris Hawthorne has argued that we're basically entering this era of the third LA and which is being defined. And so we positioned the studio to investigate the possible futures of the third LA through the lens of the street. And the premise was basically a dichotomy that LA is facing today. On the one hand, it is making the largest um, ever investment into public transport, which brings along all of these possibilities for new urban visions and new urban typologies. At the same time, we're witnessing a tremendous change in transportation technology. And the private sector has discovered a massive opportunity to engage in urban transportation for profit. 
So services like Lyft and Uber and the scooters and the shared and dockless bicycles and docked bicycles and all of that, not so far from now, we will have basically automated uh, Uber's automated lifts, which are being tested in places like Arizona uh, pretty steadily for over a year now. And so those two forces, the transit-oriented push with lots of public backing and voter support and the private initiatives to engage uh, with private technologies and privatize the transportation market, they don't necessarily align in terms of the vision of the future. They sometimes conflict head on because Transit and Lyft, for instance, and Transit and Uber compete for the same riders and they have a very different impact on urban form. And so we positioned the studio to investigate those two forces shaping or influencing the street. And the street seemed like a great um, opportunity because that's where they will play out most visibly, most palpably. When I say street, I don't necessarily just mean the public right-of-way. I mean the ecosystem of the street along with its edges and with the kind of areas behind the streets, both built and unbuilt. Um, and so that was very much um, a timely question, I think, for LA because of what's happening. I mean, it's it's true uh, what you mentioned about the the sheer volume, the extensivity of public transit built over the last decades. I think for many audiences, that's been lost on them. But if you if you spend time in that system, it's a, an incredible investment. Yes. But at the, at the same time, across an enormous geography and, and is now in a situation where you can't imagine the L.A. transit ecosystem without it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Though ridership remains a real challenge. So L.A. voters first adopted Measure S and then it became Measure M. It's essentially a sales tax increment funding. So everybody who's purchasing anything in the L.A. county uh, is charged an additional tax, all of which is funneled to fund transportation, public transportation largely, but also some highway improvements and other transportation issues. Combined, this level of funding guarantees around $200 billion up until 2040, much of which will go to uh, trains, uh, some of it to buses and some to other areas too. That's as a single investment, I believe the largest single sort of transit project in American history. There of course have been more extensive systems in New York, et cetera, but not envisioned as a whole network with one sort of big development uh, process around it. They've been more gradual line by line. And so, It is phenomenal what's happening and it's redefining the city in many ways, but culture and ridership culture in particular haven't quite uh, kept pace. So LA, for instance, is facing uh, an issue where transit riders are generally people with no other options. The average household income of a transit rider in LA is um, $20,000. This is household, not individual income. So you can imagine what the economic state of a lot of the transit riders is, which has been a strong reason why now there's a um, lively conversation about making transit free altogether. Mm. So far, a single ride costs the metro, the the regional authority who operates transit for LA, roughly $12 a ride. Mm. The ticket is $175. Mm -hmm. So there's already um, something like a $10 subsidy per every ride. Of course, much of it's because there's a lot of capital investment, the system is growing, and that's where the huge amount of funding is disappearing right now. But it it has been put the metro in a conundrum where if so much of the ridership is people from the very low income brackets, then why even bother with a 175 charge? Why even bother with with, um, policing people who who, um, can't afford the fare? But 
in the long term, the city is banking on a vision that the middle class will start riding transit, that it's not just uh, for, for very low income households. But um, as in most of America, transit ridership has actually been decreasing despite such gargantuan investments rather and than is increasing. It, would you characterize it as still um, stigmatized? I mean, I, we saw this in Miami where, is, you know, yeah. the metro rail in Miami, the transit system is inconceivable without it overall, but it's still stigmatized with the, with the working classes and the working poor. I think by and large, uh, certainly so, in part because the actual backbone of transit in L.A. is bus. Mm. About 80 percent of all transit trips occur on buses and buses are much more stigmatized um, than the rail is. And in, in, in fact, um, there's been a very contentious uh, quarrel between the public authorities like Metro and the city and many of the advocates from the NGOs or civil society organizations who have been saying that we should be investing these $200 billion much more to improving the buses rather than the rail. But I think the metro and other authorities also see rail investment as a way to attract everybody else to transit too, um, to make sure that the middle class and people who have white collar jobs, et cetera, will start using uh, transit to get around LA. It is very tough. I have lots of friends uninvolved with this body of work, just friends in LA, and um, they probably haven't used transit in Maybe some of them never, and some of them maybe over in 10 years. So it really remains a cultural challenge. We've seen this incredible change in the space of the street in terms of its forms of occupation. Well, we can also talk about the increased shipping going on in the space of the street, right? Increasingly, the space of the street is a site of the pushing of material through UPS and Amazon and FedEx and the logistics network. You know, our streets are awash with this material, especially these days combined with all these other modalities. And so in that regard, you've been interested in the street for a long time, but is it fair to say that the street is subject to new pressures, new conditions now in a way that it hadn't been for a number of decades? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's really a battleground. Not only is there a tremendous push for new mobility and logistics, but the street, is, it's also a place. It's not just a corridor for movement. And in L.A. in particular, oftentimes it's a place where people live. Uh, it's a place where people have livelihoods. There's street vending in L.A. There's, um, And it's also a political arena. It's where protest happens. It's where certain holidays or parades happen. And I think all of that is uh, being contested. So on the one hand, I, I think there has been a tremendous shift in a lot of large American cities over the last 10 years with organizations like NACTO, the the North American City Transportation Officials, Association of City Transportation Officials, pushing for more humane street designs that are not just predicated on throughput of um, automobiles, but have better pedestrian and bicycle and, and other conditions are safer for kids and so on. And I think a lot of cities have genuinely adopted them and developed their own guides. New York has one, Boston has one, Chicago has one, LA has one. They all have developed their own new templates, what a street ought to be. Um, but a lot of that is um, contested by these technologies. They haven't provisioned for, for instance, the scooters. Where should the scooter um, exist? Presumably in the bike lane, but the bike lanes have not necessarily been dimensioned as such. And the sudden arrival of those scooters and shared bikes actually have put to question a lot of these templates. And also with Uber and Lyft, uh, it's been very clear that despite cities trying to reduce the imprint of the automobile in the city through these templates and guides, Uber is increasing traffic in the city. That's one of the reasons why a lot of cities have now started taxing Uber and pushing back against Uber and Lyft because they're apparently shifting riders over from public transit to, again, automobile transit. And because of that, 
we are witnessing um, higher levels of traffic on city streets. And that, with the advent of automation, is bound to explode. Mm. I mean, the, the cost per mile of taking an Uber with or without a driver will be halved. Um, if it costs about $2 per mile today, it'll cost about a dollar per mile. So, And so the, you know, this enormous, um, in effect, subsidy that Ubers and Lyfts provide now to enable that kind of automobility, setting aside for a minute whether it's automated or, or whether it's whether it's piloted in, in the space that's really competing with, with transit, is, as you're suggesting, putting much more volume on the street. At the same moment that I think Los Angeles, like many cities in the United States, have been trying to take space back from the automobile in favor of the pedestrian. How would you characterize the status of the the bike infrastructure in Los Angeles? I I haven't spent any time on a bike in L.A. in recent memory, but maybe this is something you've given some thought to. It's varied. There are parts of L.A., greater L.A., where it's very good. If you go to places like Santa Monica or Venice, uh, it's quite excellent. But a lot of the bike infrastructure that's been built out has been really geared towards uh, recreational biking rather than commuting on a daily basis. But LA has also tried hard to implement bike infrastructure, largely because of the shared bike systems themselves. So LA is one of the few cities where bikes are operated by the city or actually by the metro, which is a transit authority. So they therefore very carefully coordinate bikes with public transit and, and stations and so on. And because of their own provision of the service, they've collaborated with LADOT to paint more lanes and make sure that you can actually safely bike around the city. It's been fairly well adopted. There's quite an impressive use of shared bikes um, in LA, largely because of that metro coordination, I believe. But it's true that the entire system of biking in LA uh, leaves a lot to desire. In fact, it's one of the best climates for biking, I would say. It's, it's really well suited. It hardly ever rains most of the year. The weather is very pleasant. It gets a little bit too hot in some parts of the year, but it really could be a very bikeable city if, if properly provisioned. What do you imagine to be the future of the, of the Los Angeles street going forward? It's a space that's contested. There's a lot of negotiation. On the one hand, it's a site of intense homelessness often, increasing volumes of people in different modes of transit. But as that street evolves over the near term, how do you think it might, uh, it might change? Well, that is the question now because I could imagine two very different futures and likely we're going to end up with some, some cocktail of a compromise. I see tremendous interest in L.A. to try to be very progressive about the technology and even push it into places like public transport to ensure that all automated vehicles that hit the streets of L.A. will carry multiple passengers. And they'll likely redefine what a bus is. A bus doesn't necessarily have to be a 50-seater um, and and have a very fixed design. It could be all sorts of vehicles that vary from 6 to 12 to 18 and, and 50, and maybe even articulated buses that can take 250 people on them. And I, I think uh, we're going to see some of that occur. But the answer to what impacts or what the future of transportation and city building will look like will very much depend on how forcefully uh, the public authorities will intervene. If we let things uh, to be defined by the market, we will largely um, see just the rise of, again, a second wave of private automobility. And every, essentially, if you're in the business of selling rides, uh, it's in your interest to sell as many individual rides as you can possibly do. And yes, in, it has some accessibility benefits to the city too, but it's it's a scenario that could bring us back to really clogged roads uh, very easily because of the price dropping so fast. So I think that's the, the 
the sort of heaven and hell versions of the future. The hell version would probably mean um, an explosion in traffic, uh, again, on small cars. And the best case scenario could be a scenario where all of these transportation offerings that come to the market with technology are heavily coordinated with public transit operations and try to increase the trunk feeder services so that people largely ride a long ride on a metro train and then maybe get a feeder to their final destination rather than taking the whole trip in a car. Again, it'll depend very much on how forcefully the authorities will intervene. And I think we'll have some sort of a hybrid at the end of this. But we shouldn't also maybe leave out the role of urban development. Transportation mode choice, how we choose to move, whether we drive or walk or take a bike or bus, is most determined by the built environment. That built environment really sets up travel demand. If you have destinations you can walk to, if there's plenty of density, et cetera, you will. And if you have convenient long trip uh, where, again, your job or your errands, et cetera, are in convenient distances from the stations you can get off. And that's really a city building question. So if LA also pushes forward with its uh, land use reform and, and zoning reform and, and ensures that future growth of the city is really concentrated around public transit, then I think it'll create that demand. So we need to be wary of it's not just a policy question of how forcefully the city controls the private transportation companies, but it's really also how, what kind of a built environment it pushes out. And, and that built environment in itself will determine what the transportation market will be. I mean, you know, Bannum's formulation of non-plan also suggested that, in fact, there, there was planning at various scales, but there was a sensibility in Southern California that Bannum observed where planning would be disaggregated. That is, transit or the building of highways was Department of Transportation, that was a state issue at the scale of the county, another set of choices were made. Then at the scale of the neighborhood association, another set of choices were made. And that these things were somehow uh, distributed in such a way so as to avoid the sense of a top-down planning. It's true, because maybe more so than any other city, it grew around, grew around the car and it leapfrogged municipal boundaries. Essentially, it's it's an agglomeration of I don't even know exact number, but probably 60, 70 municipalities that surround LA. And so each one could have their own regulations for urban growth. It's really hard to have a coherent plan as such over so many jurisdictions. Um, maybe the only unifying bond is the highway that ties it all together within, a, let's say, one hour time limit. But it's more driven by dispersed individual developer interests. But instead of a plan, I think there are typologies that persist. There's a certain glue that holds LA together, a certain logic that has something to do with how you arrive in a district, but there's the subdivision rules, the, the sizing of blocks. Even if you go far out to the suburbs, you have this sort of one kilometer or 800 meter, one kilometer grid of blocks that is very much designed around the efficiency of driving so that you don't hit green lights or red lights every two seconds, but get through it. And a certain hierarchical subdivision where the arterial roads generally don't have any entrances facing them. It's just a thoroughfare. And then you go into the block and then in the blocks, there is a hierarchy of distributed roads, etc. So there is, despite not having a, a, a large metropolitan plan, there are typological elements that I think hold LA together in, a, in some sort of a coherent way. Uh, Southern California has also been, in some ways, uh, among the industries that fueled the second phase of Los Angeles's growth was the aviation industry. I mean, first as a product of the kind of military-industrial complex and then civil aviation. Knowing that, you know, uh, LA Metro, Southern California has dozens and dozens of aerial facilities, 
and knowing that the you know the ride sharing companies and, and Alphabet and others are now engaged in thinking about how to think about aerial aerial mobility, aerial connectivity. Have you thought about this as, as a part of the scope of thought for your st- study? It is a topic that even the LADOT has to deal with. They are working with the likes of Uber to to write regulations about aerial transport, drones, etc. And LA, because of um, another historic legislation that required that all high-rises have helipads on them for fire safety reasons, has the highest density of helipads. And virtually every building in downtown is covered with a helipad. That said, my own opinion of it is that my work doesn't really engage with drones and aerial transportation for the reason that I, I don't believe that it'll be a significant piece of the urban transportation marketplace. We already have aerial transportation offerings in cities like Sao Paulo or in New York. It might cost you maybe 500 or $2,000 to get around. Even if we get that price down from 2000 to maybe 200 or 100 it's still bound to remain a very tiny fraction of all urban mobility. And that's the reason why I don't worry about that very much. I mean, that's another thing that's intriguing to me about your work is the, again, the seeming, you know, the kind of dialectic between going back to something as ancient as the street as a fundamental topic in your work, but at the same time being absolutely contemporary. Um, at what point did your work become so intensively digital? I know that you're interested in computation, mathematical modeling, both looking at uh, empirically observed patterns, but also projecting from them outcomes in cities going forward. Probably the biggest impact was MIT in the process. Um, up until MIT, I was trained in more general urban design and architecture um, areas. And I, I think... When I joined MIT, I, I almost immediately started collaborating with Bill Mitchell, who was at the Media Lab at the time. He ran a group called Smart Cities before Smart Cities was a term. <laughs> he helped define that term, I guess, and it was maybe somewhat perverse ways co-opted by a lot of corporate interests. When he thought of smart cities, he, he truly meant smart from a public perspective, not smart in a, in a, in a way to sell, sell goods or services. But I think that kind of opened me up. I, I sort of discovered, I guess, this world of um, looking at cities as emergent phenomena that are defined by so many different forces, yet we see the outcome of these forces in their form and land use pattern. So some of the influences that beyond sort of transportation technology we've been talking about that shape a city obviously are geography, climate, demographics, technology and construction. So looking at the city as this really complex object that we can study in its own right and understand how it comes and grows and develops and what are the forces that shape it, that interest really peaked at MIT. And I think technology played a pretty uh, key role in in both analyzing um, the city using various statistical or data-driven methods, but also looking at the technology as a fundamental shaper of the city itself too. And so you've built the, the City Form Lab? beginning with your appointment at Singapore and then more recently here at the GSD and now back home at MIT. What's the work that you're engaged in uh, in the lab? So we have um, a couple of interesting projects underway. One of the sort of long-lasting projects that I've personally been devoting a lot of time to is this investigation of street commerce. It's a question of urban form, but it's really a question of how do urban sub-centers form? It's an old question um, that has been investigated by many, like Chris Taller and, and so on. But I think we, with contemporary data and, and uh, analytic tools, we have a much greater ability to really um, investigate and understand the logic of how all cities have a system of centers that form a certain hierarchy. And I'm particularly looking at it through 
uh, not just job centers or all kinds of, but particularly um, the amenity clusters uh, where you have retail food and services uh, that people can walk into and which to me very much defines the daily experience of so many urbanites. Uh, we in, our interface is the public space and it's a streets question it's uh, but it's also you know where do we get things done and i think street commerce plays a really big role in in being that environment where we we get things done the interface to not just functionally um getting things done and, and running errands but also encountering otherness encountering other people where we learn what's happening in the city, where we learn where society is at. I, I think so much of that occurs on the street in clusters of street commerce. So I've been very keen to analyze that. That's My book is coming out called Street Commerce uh, in the next couple of months. So that's been a project that's been unfolding for a while. It's an empirical study of street commerce in cities around the world, uh, many of the cities I've lived in personally. I have a second project uh, ongoing right now where we finally are able to truly understand how pedestrians move in cities through big data. And there's been a great deal of interest in really studying how people behave in an urban environment, what makes one choose one route over another, what are the factors that urban designers can leverage to draw more pedestrians to choose those streets. So that's been an exciting uh, endeavor right now to take the sort of pedestrian route choice and, and walkability analysis to a whole other quantitative level. So both of those projects that you mentioned are, are data intensive, they're computational, they benefit from uh, having quite a lot of information, but they also, they seem to have this potential which is quite projective, right, I mean, or shape environments anticipating behavior. Yes. So with the lab, typically try to bring some of this research into studios. And when we work on projects on both fronts, for instance, on the question of subcenters and street commerce, as well as questions of walkability and, and mode choice and pedestrian behavior, it's it's very interesting to me to having found certain empirical findings to put them into use in design. So, for instance, in the spring semester, I'm teaching a, um, a class which is called the Workshop on City Form, where the intent is very much to reverse engineer how a design of an environment actually produces certain mobility outcomes, in this case, particularly walkability and street commerce outcomes. So, what we plan to do is to look at gateway cities around Boston where MBTA is at least verbally committed to a major upgrade. The commuter rail is supposed to be seeing a, a tremendous injection of funding and and uh, sort of this transit suburbs idea is maybe going to prosper again in Massachusetts if that goes through. We, we want to look at the urban environments that need to be there in order to, first of all, sustain that level of transit ridership around the stations, but also to create a certain character of the street in the neighborhoods themselves. So the question is, what configurations, what land use patterns, what densities do we need in order to achieve certain types of street characteristics? Certain, For instance, if we want to have a street that has a certain density of amenities available, that cannot simply be designed by the stroke of a finger. That has to be sustained economically by um, the environment around it. And we, we want to tie these research interests that I um, described earlier to a projective um, to sort of design project and design environments that produce these outcomes. If we think about the embodiment of urban environments or urban experience, as, as you've said, one can't simply, you know, design urbanity. One has to also think of its, you know, the, the ingredients. People that develop urban environments uh, 
uh, many of them for, for a long time have thought about the curation of urban environments, including retail and street character and street life. You know, in this space, we had a conversation with Craig Robbins uh, thinking about the, the design district uh, in Miami and the role of not just built environment, not just density, not just transit, but also the mix of retail hospitality, the quality of that experience. And and we've seen it in many, many environments, you know, the, the, the ingredients that can transcend the sum of their individual parts. And I think also here of, of, um, of um, you know, the legacy of, um, of, of Boston, you know, the, fan, fan, the work of Faneuil Hall and, you know, Ben Thompson. And there's a, there's a long history of the idea of curating urban environments that your work also contributes to. Yes. Well, um, and I... Maybe it would just emphasize that my work positions itself more towards investigating the conditions that produce such environments in a more pluralistic way or in a way that the public sector is the orchestrator, the municipality, not a developer. I think in America there has been a tremendous amount of innovation through the private sector to create urbanity. Uh, in part, it's because if you just compare uh, Asian, European, American context, America, in the post-war era, in the neoliberal era, uh, it has really sort of shrunk the government. It has shrunk public sector services and decision-making powers and handed it over to the private sector. So we've ended up having private developers try to essentially orchestrate urbanity in, in, in quite at scale, uh, sometimes entire districts. Um, if you think of places like uh, Hudson Yards in New York right now or some of the Boston historical environments, I mean, they are clearly something that is not evolved uh, through very many complex pluralistic actors, but it's it's a project. It's a, it's a real estate project. But the problem with that is oftentimes the same problem as with the mall. Not everyone is welcome. It's, it's a place that has certain profit targets in mind. It has a certain mission. At the end of the day, a place like uh, Assembly Row, which performs incredibly well, I'm sure it's very lucrative for the REIT who, who runs it. The main goal is to create as many purchases as you can possibly do. That's why the kind of current formula of mixed housing on top and cinemas and JP Licks on the sidewalk um, is, is in vogue. And that's what creates the purchases today. But I'm very interested in not just the kind of profitability of retail clusters or street commerce. I'm more interested in street commerce as a public venue that does much more than enables people to do purchases and run errands. So in that regard, interested in, in street commerce yeah, as, as more of this um, venue where more complex urban processes play out. Now that we have this, what Alan Erkard calls the great inversion, where we're getting people from the suburbs coming back to inner cities and there's a great deal of and property values are going up and great deal of interest in this urban lifestyle and with the new generation. Like, How do we deliver environments that do have these amenities and things, but also offer other qualities of street life that are more social and cultural in nature? And I, I personally believe that for this to occur, um, we can't just rely on, on, a, on a benevolent developer. We have to have capable city governments who take it upon themselves to help this happen. And we also need more civil society efforts to shape that. Andrew Sestak, thanks very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. 
This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.